Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. He's also a fundamentally flawed person who engages in reckless conduct and that leads to situations, calamitous situations like this, uh, which are very destructive and hurt any political cause he's associated with. And this was a case that entirely of his own making. He had no right to those documents. Uh, the uh, government tried for over a year quietly and with respect to get them back, which was essential that they do. And he jerked them around and he had no legal basis for keeping them. Well, there you have it. That is, if you don't recognize the melodious tone, is the voice of Donald Trump's former attorney general speaking fairly authoritatively on how he views the indictment that came down just a week ago. Um, you know, usually when we have hacks on tap and, and welcome hackaroos is, uh, it's a, it's usually a two host, one guest thing. Well, uh, I've been abandoned by both Mike Murphy and David Axelrod. Uh, but the good news is we've made more room for more insight. So today, one host, me, Robert Gibbs, and two guests that are going to help try to sort out where in the world where in the hell are we? What a crazy week we've had uh, in the last week of politics. But we have for you the incomparable and the always informative Maggie Haberman of The New York Times and Jonathan Martin of Politico. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Robert. It's been a crazy week. I mean, if you think we're only a week past the whole Trump indictment, Joe Biden had his first rally. We'll get into all of that. Um, I don't I, I we could probably do three shows just on Trump's interview with Fox last night. We're going to get into all that. Let me let's start with Donald Trump uh, yeah. and, and maybe start with you, Maggie. What 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 do you think is happening right now down in Mar-a-Lago? Well, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that Trump is probably feeling very good after his interview with Brett Baer because he looks at everything in terms of PR more than uh, the, you know, uh, acid reflux causing answers uh, for his legal team that he gave uh, in that interview. Uh, I think that it is underappreciated uh, by all of us, including me, frankly, um, the extent to which the political campaign is going to be the legal strategy. And I think what's happening at Mar-a-Lago is an effort to try to make Trump as omnipresent in conservative media as possible, and frankly, any media. Uh, to basically flood the zone to the extent they can, to run out the clock on the federal legal case to the extent they can, and to try to win the election and then figure out the rest later. <laughs> That's, it sounds like somebody's, they're drawing up plays in the sand, if you will. But a fascinating, fascinating for you to say the political campaign is the legal strategy. Um, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pre-apologize to you because I, when I saw your story a couple of days ago, about Trump and his boxes, I kind of giggled. Like, here's this like old man with his boxes. And then I turn I see the clips last night from Fox and his his main defense on having an Iraq war plan is this stuff's in my boxes. Yeah. No, it's it's I mean, listen, I, I started I, I appreciate the pre-apology. I only take post apologies, Gibbs, not for me. Um the uh, he I wrote about this because the phrase the beautiful mind paper boxes was in a text message in the indictment. Awesome. And so I started pulling it 
what that meant. Uh, and indeed, it, it meant and with my colleagues, and indeed, it meant exactly what it sounds like, which is a reference to um, the book and movie about John, sure. who was a a a, a he was a, a Nobel laureate winner, but he was also a paranoid schizophrenic who papered you know the walls of his office with newspapers that he believed contained some Russian code that he had to crack. Um, it's that is going to be Trump's defense. I've never heard somebody say publicly, yes, I didn't respond to a grand jury subpoena because I was too busy. Um, but that was literally <laughs> his defense uh, to Brett Baer. He did have this obsession with the boxes. He didn't want people going through them. The why of that, Robert, I think we still don't know. I think we still don't know the motive for, you know, why he co- a guy who treats most everything in terms of leverage right. amassed this amount of, of highly sensitive government paper. And the government doesn't need to prove that at trial, what the motive is, but I think that's going to hover over everything. Yeah. And, it, you know, and apparently, you know, these boxes are stuffed with golf shirts, pants and top secret documents. Well, I mean, it's that, and, really that is, remarkable. No, and that is true. I mean, there was all there were all <laughs> kinds of personal effects in there. We've reported that before. I think it was in the search warrant as well or the indictment. But it's yeah. But there was there was also this other stuff like like, you know, defense material. Jonathan, jump in here. What what are you hearing about all this? What what are, what do you see when you look at 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 the sort of all the connective energy, if you will, uh, kinetic energy, I should say, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. I mean, Maggie has said this before, but for Trump, I mean, legal strategy is almost always PR strategy and they're kind of indistinguishable. Um, and so I think that's forever the case and certainly is now. Um, like, I don't think Donald Trump wants to gamble with a jury of his peers. I think he'd rather gamble with the political process in America and you know, there's three scenarios. He becomes president, another Republican becomes president, or a Democrat becomes president. And, you know, you take those odds that two of those three scenarios, he probably is getting a pardon. And I think if you're Donald Trump, you delay, you try to get this thing pushed down the road, and you hope that the election turns out in your favor. If not you, then someone in your party. And then you exert enormous pressure on whoever is president to give you a pardon. It does put the party in an extraordinarily difficult position. Uh, nothing new, by the way, in the era of Donald Trump, right? I mean, they, they bought the ticket, they're taking the ride. Uh, and they have been ever since 2015. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's basically a subsidiary of Trump right now. Uh, and I think most Republicans are fine with that, generally in the ranked file. Um, but what that entails is, um, the next year and a half is going to be extraordinary in American politics because you're going to have either a nominee um, or at least a former president who is, uh, you know, actively in the mar- in the market for a pardon. <laughs> it, it it's remarkable that we can still be surprised or shocked or this idea of of just how crazy the next year is going to be after we've been through six, seven, eight of these years already. And and you know, thankfully, we've got sort of two kind of newsy bits that happened before we started recording. Usually this happens right after we, we stop recording. But I, I was, uh, I was fascinated by, you know, there's been a lot of criticism, um, about the judge overseeing this trial in Florida, a Trump appointee, some pretty nice Trump pro Trump rulings that were overturned, uh, earlier in, in some of this, but she scheduled an August 14th trial date. Uh, and that's not August 14th, 2024. That's August 20, August 14th, 2023. Obviously, th- now we're going to go into the the sort of tried and true Donald Trump um, 
uh, you know, four corners offense of 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 just trying to wind down the clock. But I was certainly surprised, and she's clearly trying to get out in front of this narrative that uh, that she's dragging her feet here. D- remarkable too. I mean, Maggie, that that's nine days. Again, this is may not hold, but nine days before the first Republican debate. Uh, this summer, Trump Trump's going to have to get some time off from the trial just to make the debate if he wanted to go to the debate, which I think is an open question. But but I I don't actually think that this trial is going to start on August 14th. Uh, I think that she was setting an aggressive schedule so that she is not accused of being the reason why this slows down. Right. I think we are now going to very instantly see the Trump team file a bunch of motions trying to delay it. The other piece, too, is his lawyers need security clearances in order to move ahead because this right. evidence is classified and they don't have them. So um, now there's one lawyer working on the case who probably will end up with a clearance, but I don't anticipate that August is a realistic time frame. Um, you know, but I do think it it clarifies thinking a bit on just what this overlap between not just this trial, Robert, but the others he is facing. He's facing one right. in Manhattan in March of 2024. He's facing a civil trial in the Eugene Carroll case in January. He is facing uh, a civil case from the New York Attorney General. I think it's in October of this year. And there are still one, if not two more indictments that may come against him in connection right. with his efforts to remain in power. So I think it just clarifies the fact that, to your point, I don't think it'll be true in August, but it will be true at some point that there's going to be uh, some conflict between his his political uh calendar and the judicial calendar i was struck watching that fox news watching some of the clips last night from the fox news interview we sure are a long way away from those softball hannity interviews where trump gives a marginally good answer and then hannity tries the second time to give him a better answer and then it it just it that the brett bear interview felt almost hostile and I, i don't know whether that's them trying to prove this or it just it felt a little it, it felt different, at least, than some of the stuff I've seen before. What do you both think of that? I would like to know what Jonathan thinks. I, I just want to push back a little bit on that. I didn't think it felt hostile. I thought it was really professional. I think Jonathan Swan remains the gold standard for a t- TV interview with Trump for the one he did in 2020 when he was at Axios. Um, but but I, I thought this was really good. And I thought that it was the questions were, were tough without being hectoring. Yeah, no, no. Let me let me let me clarify because that's a smart point. I, I I don't mean hostile in the sense that I thought Brett was overbearing or didn't. I mean, I th- I thought he asked everything that you would normally want in an interview or almost expect in an interview. I guess I said hostile because I don't really expect that from Fox News in dealing with Donald Trump. Brett is you know uh, is is known as a straight news reporter, and so I think that's not surprising. But I, I think that you know. I think this interview had been in discussions for a while from what I've heard from people around Trump. And uh, uh, I think that it was made pretty clear that it was not going to be a softball. And and it wasn't. I mean, the you know, the the, the, I mean, listen, he also let Trump, you know, say his piece. Right. He wasn't cutting him off every five seconds. Um, But there was in addition to the, the stuff that was related to the indictment. There was that bit where where Bear was reading off the list of former officials who worked for Trump. And then, you know, I said, why did you hire them? Which was a great question. Yeah, kind of brutal. What um, Jonathan, I hesitate to enter this into the equation because I'm as as critical of national polling in a in a presidential primary as anybody on the planet. But I I am struck by the fact that we are a week on from the indictment and. 
Doesn't look like Trump is any weaker. Doesn't look like, quite frankly, he, he, he might, quite frankly, be stronger. Every, you know, 80% of Republicans think these indictments are political. Is this, is this a help to anybody besides Trump? The short, dodgy answer is we don't know yet. Um, look, I think one of two things are happening here. Uh, one is events don't matter as much to American politics. And that's like hard to grasp uh, for people that cover right. politics or who have worked in politics or who edit coverage, Maggie, of, of coverage of politics. Um, that, that like, you know, whether it's Biden getting the debt ceiling deal or falling down on stage at the Air Force Academy, like his numbers don't really move. And whether it's like Donald Trump you know, does or does not have indictments within the Republican primary, like his numbers don't really move. And so I, either that's because events don't matter to that much anymore. And we're kind of largely stuck with where we are and people will have a fixed view. Um, or, uh, there's something else happening, which is that voters aren't being totally honest with, with pollsters about their actual views. And, um, I, I'm not totally sure. I tend to believe it's more the first than the right. second, right. um, especially with Biden. I think with Trump, I think that there is almost like a social penalty among Republicans for saying what you actually think about Donald Trump, especially to a pollster, pollster or to a reporter. Because if you, if you condemn him, then you're using the same language that his opponents use. And that's kind of a faux pas. Does that make sense? Okay. Yep. So I think we're dealing with two different questions here, which is, um, you know, uh, are you open to supporting somebody else? They may be more open to saying yes. If they're asked more specifically about Trump, but they're, they're more reluctant to, to say that uh, he, he's a bad guy or did a bad thing uh, because that's what the other side says and does. I'm sure this happened to Maggie a thousand times. Anytime you're talking to voters about Trump, if they're Republicans, even if they don't like him anymore, they're not going to vote for him again. They will still start their answer with some version of the following. I like the policies, yep. dot, 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 or right. I voted for him twice dot, dot, because they want to like preemptively make clear that they're still like Republicans. They're not haters, um, right. but then they'll go into why they're not for Trump this time. I just say all that because I think that there's a reluctance to say out loud, if you're a Republican voter, that, that you want to move on from Trump or that you condemn Trump, even more to the point. I think that's, I think that's totally true. I also just think, but I do think that your your point about how much politics is now defined by who you hate and who hates you back. And that's yeah. even true in that answer that you just described. About yeah. what can say. Um, yeah. I just think that's such a driving factor. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm still of the belief that I was going to be a huge determinant here. New Hampshire is certainly going to be a huge determinant here. I mean, I think we've, you, you all have both covered. I've certainly worked in enough of these campaigns to see how quickly the national polling will turn once we have a result from those two places, I, I do wonder, you know, uh, I do wonder if if this, I was thinking about this this morning, is some of this at least potentially good for somebody like Iran DeSantis, who is maybe has a little bit more of a period to kind of keep his head down, figure out how to how to make this whole campaigning thing work, get out on the stump, get out and talk to people, maybe without the normal kind of scrutiny where you know, everybody's got a stopwatch on how many how many seconds he speaks to each voter and whether he connects and all this kind of stuff. He had a big event in Nevada over the weekend. And I just wonder if, if you know, does it give 
I mean, obviously Trump's going to be blocking out the news, but does it give these guys a little bit of of on the ground cover to go, you know, get their campaigns going? It's a good question. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I'm just I'm just I'm thinking through what you just asked, whether the whether the indictment gives some cover. For them. Well, I, I don't know if it's the indictment. It's just it it just feels like, you know, Trump is as he does blocking out yeah. the national press son. Oh, and I, I tend to believe saying. like whether there's a stealth operation that can take yeah. place basically. I mean, I, look, I think that that's, I think DeSantis and, and, and Tim Scott are frankly most in the position to do that. Um, if anyone is, I, I do think there is a window for it. I just, I don't, I think that we're in this weird sort of nether space um, up until the first debate. And I think that's what's going to potentially create a, a moment for any of these guys. I do think that there is, you know, there's a lot of work that's being done by the DeSantis Super PAC in Iowa on the ground. Um, the Trump folks have fired back at them for astroturfing. Um, you know, I've, there's been, at least in some public polling, some movement by Christie in New Hampshire, uh, although, you know, some campaigns have questioned whether it's actually that much. Um, but that's, I think, solidifying some of the anti Trump vote because DeSantis isn't really making a play for them. I, I do think I do think there's some room, Gibbs. I'm just I'm so skeptical about how soft the ground is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if that's the case for and this is for both of you, I mean, does I mean, if Trump freezes everything, then, you know, it doesn't seem like there's much of a lane for for all that many people. You know, maybe DeSantis. You mentioned Tim Scott. He seems to have a decent amount of money. He's got a forward-thinking, forward-looking message uh, in a way that I think uh, others don't. But, I mean, I'm struck by, I mean, you know, Donald Trump spent a, a lot of time in that Fox interview last night. The answer he gave about the election being stolen is not not at all different than what he gave a week after the campaign. And, you know, here we are two-plus years later fighting something that, you know, I think maybe his people believe. I don't even think he believes it, but, you know, some of his supporters believe. And it just if that's the case, does everything just get frozen? And to your point, Maggie, one unsticks it. Is it is it is the next big moment, at least outside of a courtroom, is 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 this debate in in August? And you mentioned and again, both of you hop in here. But, you know, is uh, what are you looking for in that? Who has to make a good impression? Obviously, you've got a lot of time to deal with that. And and do you think Trump shows up? Jonathan, I think uh, uh, Trump will make a judgment in part based upon the reaction to last night's interview. I think if the coverage and his feedback uh, from his friends and allies is that uh, Brett was was overly hostile uh, or, you know, I, I would say aggressive, uh, then I think right. maybe he'll be inclined right. to send it out. I mean, look, uh, Trump has sat out debates before, right? Uh, this, this would not be... Uh, unheard of uh so that it wouldn't shock me if he, if he said well um i think the temptation to be there to defend yourself on stage uh is certainly going to be going to be tempting for him but i he also doesn't want to do fox be favors at this point yeah jonathan's totally right I'm all over. Um, i can see a scenario here where there is a critical mass of republicans who are against trump who don't want trump to be the, the nominee again in 24 who you know, divide their vote in Iowa, but still close enough, Robert, to which where Trump takes on takes on some some water. And Iowa, he either wins narrowly or loses narrowly. I think the challenge is, and I, 
you know, I'm thinking about this watching Christie's first couple of weeks on the campaign trail. I just think the Republicans are going to have a problem because the top challenger to Trump in, in Iowa, I think it's going to be different than the top challenger to him in New Hampshire. And we've seen the movie before. And um, I, I think that the calendar uh, could create a challenge for Trump's opposition. Um, you know, Trump supporters aren't going anywhere. And, right. you know, if you don't have a clear cut opposition, he's going to take advantage of that. And, you know, you tell me today, Robert, who's the Republican that can beat Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire? I don't know if there's one. I don't think there's one. Yeah. To your point, it, it, I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, Trump didn't win Iowa in 16. Yeah. And so it certainly seems like there's a path. I mean, if I was running a Republican campaign, by the way, none of the Republicans want me to run their campaign. But if I was running <laughs> a campaign right now, I would probably camp out in Iowa because I, I tend to believe if Trump wins in Iowa, I, I don't see how he gets stopped. Maybe you, maybe you hope that Iowa or New Hampshire becomes the contrarian to, to Iowa, which is a role it's played throughout its political history. But I think if they let Trump keep the momentum or get the momentum coming out of Iowa, I think it just gets a lot harder to stop. And I think, you know, that's that's where I would go park it if I was trying to upset him. Because to your point, I, I don't I think there's a lot of people that are Trump supporters or potential Trump supporters that just don't see or just, there's just no real evidence to move from him. And and in, my God, if you're still with him after all this, I'm not sure what exactly. I don't think it's something some Republican says on a stage that makes you go, oh, boy, I never really contemplated that. Boy, this this whole thing is just not going to work. Um, I, I think to some degree, I think you may have a DeSantis or somebody else uh, who's waiting for Mike Pence to try to blow him up or more likely Chris Christie to try to blow him up. And then sort of if that does that create a lane where. Two people are fighting and and I just I just I I go get some of that support and uh, and 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 try to consolidate some of it. But I, I, that's I, again, I would I would park myself in Iowa. I would uh, do a and lot Robert, of that. If you do that and you're Mike Pence or you're Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis and you put up a nice number in Iowa, but you, you, you don't touch New Hampshire and then Chris Christie is sitting in New Hampshire and gets 25 percent of the vote and winds up finishing number two to Trump in New Hampshire like Kasich did in 2016. Right. You know, then what do you do? Yeah. Well, then you, be, yeah, that's a good, I don't know, it's a you good go point. You go to South Carolina, right? Yeah. Right. Or Nevada, South Carolina. I mean, I think the challenge is to me, and, and you've got the point, which is unless it's one person who has enough strength to do it everywhere, if, right. if it's a few people doing it, that means there's nobody to coalesce behind. Maybe Trump, and then, then maybe Trump gets to a point where when it's winner take all, it's back to the 2016 scenario of, um, you know, of him accruing delegates at a much faster pace because nobody else is stopping. Him. What are we missing, Maggie? No, I don't think you're missing anything. I mean, I think that I think both things are true. I think that your point that, you know, you would camp out in Iowa has it been has been how some of these folks are looking at the race. I mean, DeSantis is not going to say that he's camping out in Iowa, but I think that's basically what he's going to do. In large measure, even though he's going to have, you know, a very well-funded campaign and a, and a better-funded super PAC uh, right. that can bolster him going forward, he's really the only one who's in that position. I do think you're going to see Mike Pence camp out in Iowa. I mean, his his folks have made that pretty clear. Um, you know, Scott Reed, um, the who was running the super PAC before Pence became a candidate, 
said they were going to run him through, you know, all 99, like he's running for county sheriff or state, whatever, you know, sheriff of Iowa. So I, I think that is what, what you're going to see. But I think that Jonathan is right, that it's just going to create this bifurcation where no one consolidates the anti-Trump vote. But the anti-Trump vote is so disparate, right? right. It's like, it's combined of people who, they're hardcore never-Trumpers. It's also people who, as Jonathan was describing earlier, like like the policies but want to move on and are tired of the right. drama. Um, you know, it's people who, you know, want to see a sort of a younger model but want the movement to continue. And there is no one candidate who's appealing to all of them. DeSantis is, I think, trying the hardest to be that candidate. But in doing that, he is forfeiting certain opportunities, right? So you could see a world where a DeSantis, you know, a lawyer, uh, and governor would say, after this latest indictment, you know, some version of what Mike Pence said, which is, I can't defend the facts and as stated in that indictment. And DeSantis is not doing that at all. DeSantis is clearly afraid of disturbing the dust around his coalition. Um, it's just not clear how long that can congeal. Yeah, Robert, I think I think that that your your point about uh, uh, DeSantis sort of using this moment to buy some time and try and figure out where things land. Yeah, and I think he he's trying to sort of groping in the dark right now, uh, look, looking for the light. Because if you can't run a frontal attack against a frontrunner who's been indicted on 37 counts, we're in pretty uncharted territory, right? right. And if you're right. the guy who's trying to catch up to the frontrunner and you can't whack him for like 37 indictments, right. um, it's a difficult moment. Uh, right. And it sort of speaks to where the Republican Party is. And maybe, by the way, Maybe you can't find the light in the dark. It's just impossible. And yeah. I think that's certainly, certainly a possibility. And by the way, that's the that that's what a lot of people concluded, named right. Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, yep. Mike Pompeo, Rick Scott, who took a pass and didn't run. That like it right. just ain't worth it. It's not happening, right? But so 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 we'll see if if um if that's the case. Uh reckless speculation here, guys. I kind of wonder it. if yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> We're here for that. That's our. I kind of wonder if DeSantis around Labor Day, maybe even Halloween, does not decide that his better bet is to do an Iowa, Nevada, uh, South Carolina move, or even you know Iowa, South Carolina, and just back out of New Hampshire, or at least downplay New Hampshire. Um, I think that runs the risk of, you know, the bifurcation of of letting two different people emerge from the first two states. But I kind of wonder if, if he if he will decide that South Carolina is going to be the more consequential a la Democrats in twenty twenty this time around. That's going to be the the one that really vaults whoever is the nominee, and that um, New Hampshire just isn't that representative uh, because independents can vote. So you got a lot of people who are unaffiliated or even Democrats playing and he's better off, uh, you know, taking a win out of Iowa, getting the big mo from that and then planting his flag in, um, in, in states in Nevada and South Carolina that are much more traditionally conservative. Yeah. Now, New Hampshire doesn't, it doesn't feel quite like it fits where he's going to go or he wants to go. And Lord knows yep. we've seen particularly candidates that appeal to evangelical voters on the Republican side in Iowa come out and find themselves on mm -hmm. shakier ground mm -hmm. when they get into a place like New Hampshire. We're going to take a short break and now a word from our sponsors. 
Let's talk a little bit of the Democratic side. Let's start, uh, Jeff, if you can play a little sound from Joe Biden's first reelection rally last weekend in Philadelphia. Folks, I'm looking forward to this campaign. I want you to know why. Because you've got a story to tell. We've got a story to tell. We've got a record to run on. And most importantly, we're not only changing this country, we're transforming it. We've created 13 million new jobs since I became president. That's more jobs in a little over two years than any president's created in one four-year term. The unemployment rate is down to nearly a 50-year low at 3.7 percent. I've seen record lows for black employment and Hispanic unemployment as well. We've created 800,000 manufacturing jobs. So there was President Biden in Philadelphia, a heavy dose, if you watched any of it, of economic populism, a room of of organized labor as he was accepting uh, lots of organized labor endorsements and juxtaposing working people and investment bankers. Uh, I thought that was uh, um, not subtle. Be interesting on the fundraising trail in the next two weeks to uh, walk people through those. Um, but uh, let, let's, I want to get to where we think his campaign is. But again, the other part of a little bit of breaking news, again, Thank you to the judicial system for making it before we recorded today. Uh, <laughs> Hunter Biden is pleading, and I think I have this right, to some misdemeanor tax charges uh, as well as a gun charge. Um, it put him into, um, I think it's a diversion program. He has to say drug free for a couple of years, um, but uh, avoids jail time, avoids, quite frankly, what Donald Trump's about to uh, be fully enmeshed in, which is uh, a, a criminal trial. And it's unclear to me. I mean, his Hunter Biden's lawyer said that he believed that this closed any of the investigations uh, on his client. I, I don't know that we've seen that from uh, from prosecutors yet. Uh, but how Maggie, how significant is uh, the news around Hunter Biden and and how, I mean, obviously we have to throw it in uh, with what's going on with Trump and, uh, and, and what the Republicans are going to do uh, around this as well. In a normal world, Robert, the son of a sitting president pleading guilty um, to charges, uh, even though I think that at least two of them are misdemeanors, would be a big deal. Um, in the world in which the former president was indicted uh, on charges, you know, one stemming from the Espionage Act that um, we can have earlier. It's it feels smaller. Um, and I think you're going to see Republicans argue that they're already breaking it, that it, it somehow argues that there's a two tier justice system, despite the fact that these are two very different cases. Um, and Hunter Biden pleaded guilty, which, you know, Donald Trump is emphatically not doing. Um, but I think that it just adds to this sense of instability around this race as we go forward. I imagine for President Biden personally, this is very distressing, given how close he is to his son. Um, and I don't know what that ends up looking like. I, I don't think, look, you know, I don't think Democrats want to have to talk about this or want to have to deal with it. I think Jonathan might have better insight on that than I do. But it, it just it just adds another dimension of, of chaos into this race. Just what we need. Right, I was. Th it was so calm before this. So right, okay. it was just another boring Tuesday yep. over here in uh, in uh, in campaign land. Jonathan, I, you know the the so so Biden's out there 
he's by all accounts in reading some of the stories, the curtain raising stories to his first event. You know, there's a lot of anecdote of, uh, you know, Joe wanted to wait maybe until the fall to start this. And, you know, uh, you know, no rush to do this, but clearly there is a lot uh, that you have to put together. Where where do you if you're assessing the atmosphere and assessing where Biden is with uh, with his campaign right now, where, where do you see that? Where do you see Democrats uh, and, and why the importance of doing what he's doing uh, now? Well, I think Biden's are probably distressed to see the fact that their, you know, surviving son is facing charges. Uh, even if it is a misdemeanor, it's obviously not a great day for any parent. Um, but I'm guessing that there's some measure of relief that's not more serious. Um, look, the, the person who pursued this case was a Trump appointed U.S. attorney. Right. Um, right. Of course, it's not going to be satisfactory to the Republicans who are who are screaming that that there's not equal justice here. They're gonna, they're going to want more. Uh, they're going to say that the you know they're ignoring the larger conspiracy going on here. I guess this is where I have to chuckle a little bit, and both of you guys will appreciate this because we've been doing this as long as we have. Is there's this like assumption that everything is so organized, like. The, the Republican instinct of saying, oh, well, you know, this was obviously a deal. And that after they, they went after Trump on the, on the, uh, the classified documents, they had to do this because th- this will make them seem more fair. And of course, Biden himself was pulling all the strings from the West Wing. And it's like, do you guys not know how government works? Like, it's not <laughs> remotely that organized. And like, what are you talking about? Tightly organized. Uh, it's very structured. Somebody who Maggie and I know well and who's a mentor to both of us, John Harris, uh, has this great expression that like each party believes the other is like uniquely sinister and yes. organized and, and just uh, ruthless. And um, you see this all the time now when it comes to um, uh, the Republicans with Biden. It's like uh, he is simultaneously like barely coherent and has got you know, early onset Alzheimer's, but at the same time is running like the most extraordinarily efficient, dastardly, um, yep. politicized DOJ yep. in American political history. It's like, well, guys, like, which of those two is it? You know, because it's hard to see him doing both. Um, right. And I, you know, I just laugh, Robert, because it's like, that, right. that's not how government is. It's not remotely this well organized and frankly, nothing is. Um, and it's just a uh, fantasy. Anyways. I mean, to your point, I mean, you know, half the time they say he's incoherent, doddering, falling down, can't stand up, can't find his way, uh, you know, off the stage or on the stage. And and then and yet when the cameras are off, he's deeply Machiavellian yes. and pulling all of the string. I mean, yes. it is interesting that, like, I'm not sure those two images line up altogether well. But I, I was struck. I mean, I think, first of all, just having Biden out on the stump is important. I think having the campaign, having to have him out on the stump is important, right? I think there's mm-hmm. there's a muscle exercise that I don't think people understand, even if you're in the White House. It takes a long time. To, to your point around the yep. structure of organization, the same goes for campaigns, right? Yeah. You've got a lot that has to get put together. There's a lot of money that has to get raised. Here we are. What is this? The, 20, the 20th of June, the first fundraising deadlines in 10 days. There will be heavy, heavy scrutiny. Uh, for a sitting a sitting president to show a pretty big fundraising number, 
uh, there's a, a, the structure again. You have to build a field organization. You have to build. They don't even have. I don't think they even have an office yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's a lot of I think unsettledness here. And I was struck um, just having been uh, in Washington the last few days. Um, I've heard more conversation about no labels and third party candidates mm-hmm. uh, than I have in a long time. And so part of what I want to discuss here is, is, and I guess my first question before I get to no labels, because I've got two great reporters and I'm going to ask you this question. Um, if, if, if Robert Kennedy Jr. is on the ballot in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Joe Biden isn't on the ballot in Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and RFK Jr. wins both of those, Yep. your editor says, Maggie, Jonathan, what's the news story value? Your answer is blank. I think that um, I think the question will be different. Um, I think the question that the news editors everywhere will be asking is, is Biden in trouble? Um, and while I think the answer is that Biden will be fine uh, as the nominee, I don't think this is something that his advisors or his campaign wants to deal with. I don't think this is a headache that, I mean, you know, I've spoken to Biden folks who have been predicting that, you know, RFK could end up with overall about, you know, 20%. And that's... And he's at that in some polls, right? Yeah, exactly. And like, and so that's not, again, it's not enough to change the race, but it is enough to suggest weakness on the part of the incumbent president. There is a reason, and Robert, you know this very well, there is a reason that Trump's people in 2020, in the preceding two years, his advisors, Justin Clark and Bill Stepien, worked very hard to try to stave off any oxygen that a Republican challenger could get in a primary, even though it was largely going to be symbolic. It's just that that's how you start to show weakness and how dominoes start to fall. So, you know, I think the stories will write themselves. I think the question is whether they impact the outcome. And I don't think they will, but to to Jonathan's point from earlier in the show about what a closely divided country this is and how everybody's just in their entrenched camps, you know, the RFK vote, it seems to me, and Robert, you're much smarter on this than I am, but seems to me represents a fair number of disaffected Democrats who are waging a protest vote. And, you know, what that looks like in terms of whether they come back in a general election, I think is a big question. I think a lot of the vote is just now um, either because his name's Kennedy or because he's not Joe Biden. That's and right. there's plenty of Democrats who want somebody else to run that's not named that's Joe right. Biden. Um, look, I think it's going to be really embarrassing, Robert, when the New Hampshire primary, which has been covered intensely as the first uh, in the yes. nation primary for over a half century, comes back with a return that yep. shows Robert Kennedy or somebody else defeating the sitting president of the United States. I know what the pre-spin is going to be and the post-spin is going to be. Biden didn't file papers. He was not on the ballot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. The vast majority of Americans who don't follow politics that closely know that New Hampshire is New Hampshire and they're going to see Biden lost. What? What happened? Exactly. So it's going to be, it's going to be, I think, a difficult couple of days. And look, Kennedy is just a symptom for this larger issue of there's plenty of Democrats that don't want Biden to be their nominee. And I know... That like it is expected among sort of democratic elected official dumb that like you have to salute and follow the line and you have to be for for Biden because Trump's knocking at the door again or banging at the door. The problem is that there's a lot of rank and file Democrats who don't want Biden to run again. That's right. And will they vote for him if if he's the, the option against Trump? Of course, the vast majority of them will. But yeah. Robert, that's a different question than wanting Biden to be the nominee again. Yeah, I mean, look, I think for. for for what he's facing right now, it, it, 
you both of you touched on this. Like if this was Robert Smith Jr., we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? The last name is Kennedy. There's a love affair uh, in the Democratic yep. Party, rightly so, with a, with a family that produced three senators and a president. Uh, so th- there's that. I, I think and I wonder, Maggie, your point, whether this is whether these are really disaffected Democratic voters or not, I think is an interesting question. Um, I, I I tend to believe I, I tend to believe why I think this is ultimately going to be a pain in the ass and a nuisance, but not anything mm-hmm. other than a pain in the ass is I just don't think there are a lot of I don't think anti-vaccine Dems is nearly the sort of bubble size that you would need to cause um, real kind of consternation, right? No question about that. Yeah, I think that's right. Right. If this was an ideological, you, you go back in history, you see Pat Buchanan, you know, waging a, a deeply ideological primary that wounds George H.W. Bush in such a that's significant right. way. And, and so I think in some ways it's markedly different there. I, I don't disagree that this is going to be, again, a nuisance, something they're going to have to deal with. It's going to take up some news cycles. Does this open the door, though? And do, does Kennedy even getting the traction that he's getting? And I take yeah. it, and you're right. Now, a lot of it is the last name, and some of it is just a placeholder. But here's my question. Does the traction that he is getting, with all those caveats, does that encourage somebody else to get into the race? Right. That, I mean, that's I've been wondering the same thing. You know, yeah. that's not an anti-vaxxer. That, yeah. that is more of a mainstream Democrat. See, I think the challenge with that is if – I think in this sense, Biden is actually they have done a good job and he is stronger in this sense that they've basically let enough people know that he that that he is a that he's politically strong enough, even as you've seen some of these polls. And to your point, you know, you show people in a focus group, they may not love him when you're it's just, hey, do you want him to be the nominee? And then you say, hey, Joe Biden versus Ron DeSantis, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, like the line gets pretty sharp. That's like. Everybody's in line and they're ready to go. I think the challenge is if you were a Gavin Newsom or you know somebody else, if you ran against Joe Biden as a sitting sitting president, if you didn't beat that person, basically your political career is over. And I don't think there's anybody in, on the Democratic side that's willing to put those kind of chips in the middle of the table. And it's much easier to get behind the Dem- sitting Democratic president than it is to sort of risk your political career. I will say this, if I was, and I entered, I talked about this as we led into this, I- I'd be far more concerned about the practical impact of either this weird no labels third party business, or I'm, I'm going to say this, I hate to give this any oxygen, but if Cornell West runs as the Green Party nominee and they're on enough important states. And just to keep in mind, Cornell West and Kanye West, neither of them is going to be president of the United States, right? But in reality, to impact the race, they don't need to be president. If the Green Party's on the ballot in six states and he pulls any kind of numbers, you got problems, right? I mean, th- we, we all know this. 2,000, 537 votes in Florida and 100,000 Ralph Nader votes. How about 2016, where right. you, know, you had Jill Stein um, on the Green Line and then you had I can't even remember. Was it, was it, was it Gary? Who was on? The, who was there? Was another Gary Johnson? Gary right? Johnson, right? Yeah. So I mean, that's it. T- it was a, a not insignificant portion of the vote in a number of states. So uh, you know, I do think that that is a, a condition that it's somewhat ripe for this time, depending on who we're talking about. Um, right. And and I know that that is 
of concern to a number of Democrats who believe that it would pull disproportionately from Democrats than from yeah than from the Republicans. Robert, I think it's possible that we, that we could have like a four-way race where you have you know a sort of Cornell uh, West taking like you know not a lot but the sort of some disaffected f- folks on, on the far left, especially those under the age of thirty. And then you can have some kind of a moderate who just has given folks somewhere to go that can't stomach in the Trump or Biden option again. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm struck, you know, you, you, some of this no label stuff that's floating around this polling that says they can win 25 states and 280 electoral votes. And if there's a poll that legitimately says that, I would advocate for an immediate drug test of that <laughs> pollster because that is that's just not happening. But to your point, you know, Maggie, your, your, and your example is better than mine because it's much closer. And that is, this is a race that's going to be decided in five or six states, you know, by a, a handful of votes. And by handful, we mean just, uh, you know, a few thousand in some of these places. You know, giving somebody any other place to go is something that's going to keep a lot of people up at night. It's just going to cause a lot of consternation. It's going to your point. It just adds to this idea. This is. It is chaos 2024 in kind of every way, shape, or form. And now, a word from our sponsors. What is the biggest short-term political imperative for Joe Biden. We're past the debt ceiling. I'm trying to waste some time so you can think of your very smart answer. We're past the debt ceiling, which seemed to be the kind of immediate cliff that was really disconcerting. In many ways, uh, the news today that Hunter Biden is 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 not going to end up in a courtroom uh, other than to plead guilty uh, and not go to jail, That's that seems a bit off the map now. What is the biggest short-term political imperative uh, for Joe Biden to be successful uh, come November of 2024? Hmm. That's a great question. I'll, I'll start. Um, Please. Yeah, Maggie just was motioning off camera to ask Jonathan. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was, <laughs> yeah, yes, in Jmart's direction. Ask yes, yeah. exactly. I said this with a, with a total straight face. All right. Not falling anymore and not having senior moments. I'm totally serious about this. Yeah. The, the most damaging thing to Biden's prospects. It, in terms of A, warding off a more serious Democratic primary challenger, and B, in terms of winning the general election a year and a half from now, is not being perceived as too old for the job. I mean, th- that is the challenge he has, is that his numbers don't move, uh, in part, I think, because there are plenty of people in this country who just think he's not up for the job anymore, and they right. want somebody else because they don't think he's capable of doing the job, or certainly isn't for five more years. And I think anything that reinforces that notion, Robert, I think is just terrible for him. I think that I would I would just go with whatever he can to keep the economy from sagging. I mean, I I think those are the two biggest issues for him: the perceptions about his age, um, and not perceptions. He's he's the oldest president we've ever had, but uh, you know the perceptions about his abilities uh, along with the economy. I think that if if yeah. if either of those is a problem for him in the fall i think he, in, of 2024 i think he has uh, real issues but i but i think jmart's correct it's not just the short term but frankly in the long term you know one thing that i know concerns democrats a lot is the idea that there will be some incident uh in the fall of 2024 and uh, uh that would be a, a a risk to biden yeah no doubt well i look the the administration got some relatively good news on inflation last week we used to uh ax and i would uh 
hurriedly look at the employment report when we were in the White House. Uh, I can imagine they're looking at consumer price index uh, on a monthly basis and tuning in uh, with some regularity to Chairman Powell's news conferences uh, on whether or not they're going to raise interest rates. Let's do a couple of things. We've started a book club. I know you think maybe Murphy can't read, but we we have a book club. It's hacksontap.com slash book club. And we ask our guests, give us something good to read that our listeners would enjoy. Can be nonfiction, fiction, politics, can be whatever. Give us a good book. City for Sale by Jack Newfield and Wayne Barrett. It is essentially the the origin story of the, the 1970s, 80s corruption muck uh, and milieu that Donald Trump came from. Uh, and it's sort of the prototype for a lot of what came after reporting wise. Can't recommend it enough. It's not wow. it's not the lightest read, um, but it is a very good read. There you go. Jonathan. The closest thing that we've had, and it wasn't that close, but the closest thing that we've had to the present day political and constitutional challenge that we're looking down the pike at right now uh, was, of course, when President Nixon resigned to avoid uh, impeachment and was subsequently pardoned uh, by his successor, President Ford, uh, uh, preempting uh, what I think what would have been the inevitable federal charges uh, against him. And there's a great new book out about President Ford by Richard Norton Smith. It's called An Ordinary Man. It is one volume biography of Ford, and there's just fantastic new material about um, Ford's rise to the vice presidency and then Ford's ascent to the presidency when Nixon resigned. Uh, and also a lot on the choice he had to make about whether to pardon uh, or not to pardon uh, Nixon stuff that is uh, uh, all too relevant for this moment. Excellent. Two good reads from our guest today. Jeff, play the music. I never remember the address you're supposed to send questions to, but I think it's hacksontap at gmail.com. But send your questions. There it is. Hannah helpfully puts it in the Zoom chat. Hacksontap at gmail.com if you have a question for us. Maggie, this is a, a maybe perfect for you. It comes from Bruce. After this, he's a little he's a little forward on this, I'm gonna warn you. After Trump is convicted in the federal documents case, do you think he will flee the country? and seek political asylum in Russia or Saudi Arabia. So I think that we don't know for sure that he will be convicted in that case. Any number of things can happen. Um, and uh, the Florida jury pool is uh, likely to be uh, a little more favorable to Trump than a Washington one would have been. Um, so I think that answers the next question about which countries he might flee to. I was struck watching a, a clip this week of, uh, of Lindsey Graham suggesting that it would be patently unfair to indict a Republican in Washington, D.C., based on the makeup of what the jury is. Uh, just a little bit of a hot tip out there for your listeners. If you're a little worried about what the jury pool would look like in the place you're committing a crime, my suggestion would be to try just not to commit a crime there. Just as, you know, that's my public service uh, announcement uh, for lawyers. Jonathan, for you, let's go to Steve's question. If Joe Manchin is actually considering a doomed presidential run, we just talked about this as no labels, that could end up giving us Trump 2.0, and he puts in parentheses, the revenge tour, I guess the, the new concert tour has a name. Would President Biden be wise to offer him an ambassadorship to wherever the hell he wants to go? He doesn't really have a chance in West Virginia for his reelection, but Ambassador Manchin sure does sound nice to me, says Steve. What do you say? Steve, I like where your head's at, man, because look, I think the smoke-filled room is 
is not a bad thing. Okay. It's not a four letter word in American politics. Deal cutting within political parties. Uh, it's a longstanding tradition in this country and it, it is not a federal crime, uh, to, um, uh, refer to a more topical issue. Um, well, the be. fact is, <laughs> uh, Democrats, Democrats have a problem on their hand. Uh, Joe Manchin, uh, wants to stay a- active in politics. He's got a really difficult reelection. It's not clear he can survive that, that reelection. Um, and he's tempted to look at running third party. Yeah. So if I'm Joe Biden and I'm Chuck Schumer, yeah, I'm going to spend a lot of time with Joe Manchin. I'm going to go down to his boat, uh, almost heaven. Uh, TM and I'm gonna I'm gonna have a nice long chat with Senator Manchin and try to figure out where his head's at and how you can keep him uh, somehow from from doing that third party campaign because it would take votes from people who don't want to vote for for Joe Biden again but can't stomach the thought of voting for Donald Trump either and so look is that an ambassadorship uh, is it something involving his alma mater WVU is it um, something involving his wife and look. There's ways to be creative here if you're a Democrat, and I'd, I'd be surprised, Robert, if they weren't exploring uh, some kind of possibilities, especially if Manchin gets closer and closer to the edge of running third party. Well, you heard it here. Jonathan's strategy, go to the boat to keep him in the boat. Boom. Jonathan, I, don't, I, I read this weekend that they're looking for a new basketball coach. Do you, do you think he can coach basketball? He was a football guy, but you know, look, he can sell. Joe Manchin can sell, man. So if you try to recruit kids, basketball, football, what's the difference? You know? Yeah. No, it, it'll be interesting to watch him. He, um, boy, I, I mean, you put a microphone in in front of him, and he never closes an option. Which, to your point, is uh, probably gets him a lot of invitations to do those meetings, and to also get more more microphones in front of his face. I should add too. Yeah. I'll ask Keith. Given the advances in AI and deep fakes, if you managed to campaign, how would you handle a deep fake video being released of your candidate doing or saying something disqualifying a few days prior to the election? Keith, a great question. And I think something that is more and more keeping campaigns, companies, the heads of organizations up late at night trying to think this stuff through. I would say the first thing any good campaign has to do is have a really, really, really good sense of all the things that their candidate has already said. Uh, I know there are campaigns that live in fear of, oh, I remember I was edgy in this speech in front of this group and they could have a video of this and blah, blah, blah. Now you don't have to worry about it uh, as much because somebody can just create it out of whole cloth. And we, we see this stuff, you know, if you're on Twitter at all, you see this stuff pop up, you know, the speech you'd like to hear Joe Biden give or the speech you'd like to hear Donald Trump give uh, and all that stuff. I, I don't think there's any way to put a put a lasso around this. I think this is the world that we live in. Have a pretty good sense of what your campaign has said. Have a pretty good sense of what your candidate has said. Uh, and make sure you're really adroitly out there, particularly in the lead up to the last five or 10 days, the last two or three days, uh, and can push back very quickly on something that pops up. But we are in the Wild West, and uh, AI and deepfakes are going to keep campaigns on their toes uh, for a long, long time, including this campaign cycle. It is election day in primary election day in Virginia. Uh, so if you're listening to us from Virginia, go vote. Uh, Maggie and Jonathan, thank you for joining us for this edition of Chaos 2024, also known as the Hacks on Tap uh, podcast. Enjoyed talking to you, and I have no doubt that you both will be back soon telling us what's what. Thank you both. Thanks. Thanks, Gibbs. Download this podcast, recommend it to a friend, 
Follow us on Twitter at Hacks on Tap. Go to our YouTube channel, uh, our YouTube page. Go to our Facebook page and like us. All of that stuff. Send us a question. All of those things. Uh, we love hearing from you. We love the back and forth. Uh, we should probably do an episode soon where we just do questions. That sounds like an August one to me, uh, if we can ever get a break. But uh, thanks again for listening. Go to our pages and send us feedback. Thank you to everyone who listened. Uh, some measure of, uh, of Axe and Murphy and me will be back next week. Uh, hopefully those guys will be uh, off their vacations and, uh, and back to work. 